So it is Communion Sunday. It's the first Sunday of the month. And so what I like to do on that Sunday is kind of share my heart, soul, mind, strength goals with, with everyone. I believe that the discipleship model that I use and that I want to slowly kind of um, establish here it comes out of Jesus' great commandment. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. And so what I do is I take that command and every month I kind of break those areas, heart, soul, mind, and strength into areas of relationship, uh, prayer, worship, uh, you know, mind being engaging scripture in some kind of creative, challenging way, and then strength serving and giving. And this month was kind of really easy because when I was thinking about it and praying about it, I realized all of my goals for this month are all centered around Incarna. This thing that we're doing uh, in two weeks is, I think it's going to be tremendously special. It's very, very hard to articulate if you haven't um, experienced something like it before, and that's why I'm really encouraging people to just show up. It's part sacred space, it's part creative space, it's part prayer space, it's part worship space. It's going to be in the evening, we're going to have lots of these kind of candles set up, we're going to have stations, and every station is going to give you an interactive window into the the power and the truth and the revelation of Jesus' incarnation. Incarna is um, the Spanish word for incarnation, or the first part of it. And so this is an evening where we're wanting people who have put their faith in Christ to come and maybe to be hit by the power of the incarnation in ways that are fresh and new, and also to create a space for people who, seekers, skeptics, people who are maybe resistant to institutional religion, whatever they have in their mind, or Christianity, that they would also come, that we would invite them, and that they, that we would trust that God would use this space, um, this very open, kind of choose-your-own-adventure kind of space, going through it at your own, at your own pace, but I met with the artist a few weeks ago, and the, the stations that are being crafted for this are just really, really beautiful. I've only ever done this kind of on my own before. Me and another pastor kind of just did it, the two of us. And this is the first time I've ever invited other artists in kind of a collaborative nature, and it is going to be incredibly, incredibly special. And I really believe it's going to be very, very empower- powerful. So what I have for my heart goal this month is I want to invite four people to incarnate, not four people from the church, if I can do that very easily from up here, but I want to invite people that I just interact with in the community. I tried to have invite cards printed off for this Sunday, but I was still kind of in Ontario mode where I thought like you could just give like a printing place like 12 hours notice and you could just get the cards. And it's kind of like, uh, I kind of had a little experience of Kootenai time this week, so it'll be ready for next Sunday. They're going to be ready early in the week, but uh, we're going to have ones to hand out uh, and um, I'm going to, I want to hand out them uh, just to people that God puts in my path uh, throughout the week as I'm going about doing what I do. Um, and that's really important to me. And, and really there, the easy thing for me is to invite other Christians in the city of Nelson that I know, but I'm really going to want to pray that God would lead me to give four of those invite cards and personally invite uh, four people who are far from God, whether they've walked away from faith and, and are not, uh, following Jesus right now, or people who are just like, I've never even, I don't even go to church, it's not on my radar, and God would somehow use that. Soul, I want to be doing a lot of praying around Incarna. I'd, I'd please invite you to pray for that time too. Uh, this is a, uh, it's a really powerful time where people can 
where I think God can get at people in different ways than the conventional church service or just going about kind of hurtling through the, the Christmas season and, and the busyness. Um, I'm going to be preparing kind of the, the cue cards for the stations and, and kind of wrapping up the whole scripture, what are the major themes and, and how does each station reflect the incarnation and, and connecting those dots. So that's kind of my mind goal is to really take time to craft that well and put the right scriptures before people. Um, and then strength, that is incarnate. It's going to be a lot of setup. We're setting up a Monday and Tuesday the week before and they'll be teared on on the Friday night. And so uh, that's going to be a lot of work. So incarnate is what I'm super focused on this month. And I, again, would really, really implore you to um, to show up to one of the evenings, ideally two, and be open to God, putting someone on your heart to say, would you be willing to come to this for, you know, with me? I think, I think you'd really dig it. I think, I think you'd like it. Okay, also, this Friday, we, uh, this past Friday, we tested out a new thing. Uh, it's, a, it's an email newsletter that I sent out called the Summit Newsletter. And I want to be doing this for a little bit and just kind of getting people's feedback and reaction to it. It's very, very simple. The idea is that this would uh, slowly become the one-stop shop for all the things that are happening in and through our church, but in and through the community that we want you to know about. I've organized it according to heart, soul, mind, and strength as a reminder to you about what our discipleship model is and to just help ease of organization. So it's not just a block of reminders, events, stuff going on. We're actually saying, here are ways that you can deepen your relationship with other people. Heart, you know, Soul's going to highlight uh, articles, videos, uh, opportunities for prayer and worship, mind deepening scriptural understanding, strength, ways to serve and give within the, our church, the city of Nelson. I'm also going to be including in there articles or videos, resources that I come across that I think are really, really excellent that... Um, I want to make sure that I'm availing the community of and saying, hey, if you've got 10 minutes, please read this article. And so if you didn't get an email on Friday, that means you're not on our email list. So you can just email me and I'll make sure you get on that list. You can just email jeff at ecov.org and that will get to me and then you'll get your uh, summit newsletter on Friday. We are going to be closing out the, chap the first chapter of Mark's gospel today. We finally did it. It took us a billion weeks, but we're almost done the first chapter of Mark. We are going to be taking a little bit of break from Mark at the start of the year, but I wanted to get through the first chapter before Christmas, and I've done it. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 45. I'm going to read through it, but I'm going to pause, and I'm going to teach through it as we read through it. There's kind of three distinct sec sections here. I'm going to lean a little bit more. Oh, there's a Summit Newsletter thing. There you go. Look how pretty that looks. That's nice. You want that showing up in your inbox. That, that's not spam. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um... So I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 1, 29 to 45. We've been going through the gospel of Mark. It's a gospel of insurrection where Mark is putting before us this coming king, this figure, this Jesus person who a lot of people don't know heads or tails what to make of. They want a Messiah to come, but when he does come, he's acting and doing and teaching and engaging with God's people and the authorities in ways that are sometimes very strange and sometimes just uh, dangerous and very off-putting in some cases. But the theme through Mark is very clear. The kingdom of God is coming, and it's overthrowing the established powers and principalities of darkness. Some of those are demonic in origin. Some of those are human in origin. But Jesus is coming with good news, a good news of a coming kingdom. The rule and reign of God is happening right now. 
And that means there's an entirely new kind of life that's possible for those who respond to this message. So we just had this uh, interaction last week where Jesus is in synagogue, the kind of the church of his day on Saturday. He tells a guy who uh, has an unclean spirit, he tells the unclean spirit to kind of shut up, to be muzzled, cast him out. People are like, what is going on? And then in Mark 1, verses 29, we continue in the story and it says, as soon as they left the synagogue, so this is right after, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon is, is Peter here. Uh, Simon, or Peter's mother-in-law, was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. Just a footnote, a fever in the ancient world is a lot more serious than it uh, is for us, because a fever indicates infection in the body, and it wasn't just as easy as taking antibiotics, and you'll feel better in a few days. So we might look at this and be like, um, verse 31, so Jesus went to her, took her hand, and helped her up, and we're like, oh, that's nice. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That's nice. But this actually was a life-threatening situation, and we don't know how severe this, the fever was, but it was something serious. And to note there, and this is really important, whenever Jesus heals anybody in the Gospels, it's instantaneous and it's total. It's not like a, what I would call like a soft heal. When, when, G, when, when Jesus touches people, there's no account in the Gospels where Jesus touches someone who has a severe illness, and they're like, I think I'm starting to feel a little bit better. That you never have any reports of that. It's instantaneous. And it's total. The fever leaves. And what do I mean by total healing? It's not just the absence of the disease. It's not just that the fever has left. If you or I had a fever for days or maybe uh, for up to a week or two weeks, and then the fever left, you're not going to get up and start serving lunch to people. Because it weakens the body tremendously. It takes a huge toll on your body. The fever might be gone, but you would be like, oh, praise the Lord, the fever's gone, but I'm going to need a few days to kind of get back up on my feet, so to speak. When Jesus heals people, he will heal them totally. He doesn't just take the disease away. He imputes strength and fitness and vigor. We, we tend to not see that, um, but it's important to see that. When he heals people who are paralyzed or crippled, he says things like, yeah, take up your mat and walk and go home. These legs haven't worked their entire life. But Jesus doesn't just remove the illness. He strengthens. He heals in a way that is instantaneous and total. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed and the whole town gathered at the door. This is really important in the Gospel of Mark. Mark wants us to understand that this is this, there's a tipping point that's happened. Jesus is doing enough miracles now that the word is spreading and people are coming to Jesus. And it's important to understand that they're not coming to Jesus primarily to hear about the good news of the kingdom. They're not coming to hear his teaching. They want something from him. They want the healing. I know someone with a fever. I have this disease. I have this illness. There's a miracle worker in town. The house is surrounded. They want to get at Jesus. Jesus is becoming tremendously popular but not necessarily for the reasons that are going to make it easy for him to move forward in his ministry. The entire town is hungry for Jesus' healings, but we're going to find out pretty soon. A very small percentage of those people are actually interested in what he has to say, in the truth that he's come to proclaim about the rule and reign of God. But it says in verse 34, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons, and he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. When it says that Jesus healed many who had various diseases, it doesn't mean like there were some people he didn't heal. 
Like, he healed most people. And some people he was like, yeah, sorry. You can, you can just go and I'll heal the next person. It just means that of the people that were healed, which was all of them, there were many of them. It wasn't just like Jesus healed all the people, but there was like six of them. Many, many people, at least in the hundreds. In Luke 4, verses 40, Luke makes it specific that whenever sick people were brought to Jesus, Luke 4.40 says, he healed all of them. Not just people who are coming for the right reasons even, right? There's another story about, you know, 10 lepers who get healed. Only one even says, thank you. Jesus doesn't retract the healing though. He's not like, hey, wait a second. That's pretty impolite to not even say thank you. Yoink, I'll take the, I'll take the healing, but he doesn't even do that. Everybody who comes to Jesus gets healed. And you're starting to see this pattern of demons. Mark's talking about demons a lot. And the pattern that Jesus is shutting the demons up. He's muzzling them. It started at the synagogue, but in all these demons, they're trying to tell people who Jesus is. And he's saying, shut your mouth. Be muzzled. He's not letting them speak. Which is kind of strange. Because why would demons be interested in letting everyone around know who Jesus is and what he's doing? That doesn't make sense to us. Why wouldn't they be spreading lies about who Jesus is? Why wouldn't they be slandering Jesus? They're not. They're saying things like, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? They're bearing witness to who Jesus is. Why are the demons trying to spread Jesus' fame and popularity? And if they are, why is Jesus not letting them? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't that be a testimony that... Wow, even the demons acknowledge his lordship and his kingship. We're going to find out at the end of this text why this is actually a problem for Jesus to become famous and for right now in his ministry for people to find out who he really is. Verse 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, what are you doing? We're, we're, we're in that sweet spot where people are coming from all over. You have the chance now. Don't, this is not the time to like, retract. This isn't the time to hide away. People are looking for you. They want to have radio interviews. They want to put you on TV. They want to they broadcast you. Why are you hiding? First of all, it, it's, it's kind of hidden in plain sight, but... This is so important. Notice Jesus' response. One commentator said this. Is look at Jesus' response to a time of um, rocketing popularity and, and, and rocketing opportunity to help a huge amount of people. He says Jesus' response to a time of extreme busyness, to a time of extreme opportunity, to incredible popularity, when there's an opportunity for over-the-top kingdom of God productivity, Jesus' response is very different than what you and I would do. It's, it's very different than what you and I would do. Because when you and I, he's speaking, he says, when you and I come into a time of incredible popularity, productivity, opportunity to get so much done, to do so many of the things we've always wanted to do, even good things that we can do in God's name for God, the first things that go in our life are solitude, prayer, and quiet before God. Those are the first things that always drop when there is this opportunity 
to do more, to be productive. Everyone is, everyone's looking for us. Everyone needs us. Look at, look at the lineup out the door. And Jesus shows us something very powerful about what's, a, what's an A1 priority, like what's an actual first thing in the kingdom of God. And he shows us something very important about prayer and solitude and making sure that in that echo chamber of popularity, you don't lose who you are. You stay connected to your source of life and you stay connected to your core identity, which doesn't come from doing things. It comes from being and receiving love and your identity from God the Father. I mean, think about the needs and opportunities that were before Jesus. Imagine a thousand people lined up down this road and someone here having the ability on demand to heal someone and saying, I'm just going to stop and pray for a little bit. I'm just going to pray. That, that, is, that just seems almost wrong to us. You can understand why Peter says, why like everyone's looking for you. Like, come on, get, get to work. But Jesus says, this is the greater work. This is the more important work. He prioritizes prayer. And so I was doing that and I was preparing for incarnate and all these things. And I was thinking this week, you know, what am I so involved in? What are the opportunities that are before me that are so important that I drop prayer, that I drop solitude, I drop uh, quiet before God? It just it seems insane that I don't prioritize prayer the way Jesus did. Jesus said, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach, for that is why I've come. Jesus says, I'm go- I'm, I will do miracles here, but I haven't actually come to do miracles. I haven't come to to raise the dead. That's not my A1 priority. My A1 priority is to preach. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. I've come to preach. That's the A1 priority. Jesus says, of all the things that I'm going to do, it's not the most spectacular. It's not going to create the crowds. Tons of people will come for signs and wonders. A, A ton of people don't come for teaching the truth about the kingdom of God. Jesus says, the first thing, the reason why I've come is to teach and to proclaim God's truth to people. And the signs and wonders bear witness to that truth, but that, my priority is to preach. Which, again, that's a, that's a pretty remarkable statement when you understand the depth of suffering of some of these people. People who are lame and crippled and blind, who have relatives who are dying, who have children who are dying. And Jesus says, I will heal them all, but that's not my priority. My priority is to preach. He wants to go into all these places and these synagogues and teach. Our sensitivity says, what could be more important than raising little girls from the dead? What would be more important than giving sight to someone who's only known blindness and has been locked into socioeconomic poverty because of that? Jesus says, yeah, those are good things. They bear witness to the, to the fact that the kingdom of God is coming. God wants healing, but that's not my priority. My priority is to preach. Jesus' message, the time has come, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He's calling people to rethink how they're living, to turn away from the path they're going on. That's what repentance means. It means if you're moving in one direction, change direction, repent. In light of the fact that God's Messiah has come, the reign of God is at hand, an entirely new type of life is open and available. Rethink your entire mode of being. That's the A1 priority. So we traveled throughout Galilee, verse 39, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Mark always puts these things together. He's teaching and he's driving out demons. 
And the inference at this point we now realize is he's driving out demons and he's muzzling them because they're trying to get the word out on who he is. Again, we'll find out why in a second. But this is the the part of the text that really kind of rocked my world this week. This is really, really powerful. The end of Mark chapter 1 says in verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Um, there's a picture that was just up of, uh, that's a very recent picture actually, of a man in the south, one of the southwest, um, southwest regions of India. That was taken about two years ago. And uh, I, I just want to keep that picture up as I'm teaching on this because this isn't like leprosy like you see in the children's storybook Bibles and stuff like that. Uh, leprosy is a, uh, it's a horrific disease on kind of holistic levels. Leprosy has t- terrified the ancient world. It's, you know, it's not an issue for us in the West because of different technological and medical advances. But for much of human history, it was a terrifying disease. It was the kind of the capital D disease of diseases. It was reported as early as 600 BC in India, China, and Egypt. It's now officially called Hansen's disease. It's still a major health problem in some parts of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. But for many centuries, leprosy was considered the disease of disease because it was connected, it was was seen as so horrific that people kind of said it has to be almost like a curse of God. Like there's suffering and then there's like leprosy. So if you have leprosy, then it must be, like even people from pagan backgrounds said, it just it doesn't stand to reason that this is just like an illness like any other illness. This has to be connected with the fact that the gods are angry at this person. This is kind of like karma in the universe come to, to, to come to roost in this person's life. So it was connected with the idea of the gods or the gods cursing people. In Israelite society, it was often associated with sin. It was kind of seen as a living embodiment of sin. Leprosy doesn't kill a person per se, but it doesn't either kind of end. It's this long, slow degeneration of the nervous system. If you had leprosy, you were like a dead man walking. You were a living picture. You know, you know the TV show The Walking Dead? You were the walking dead. You were alive but only in the most basic biological sense of the word. In every other way, any meaningful way, you were, you were a dead man walking. You were the living dead. The symptoms start in the skin and the peripheral nervous system. Uh, you experience tremendous disfigurement of skin and bones, twisting of limbs, curling of fingers to form kind of a characteristic claw hand. Facial changes include thickening of the outer ear and the collapsing of the nose. You'd have these tumor-like growth growths called lepromas that may form in the skin and in the respiratory tract. Optic nerves are often attacked and they're deteriorated with with tumor-like growths. You have a large amount of deformities that develop from the loss of pain sensation due to nerve damage. Leprosy attacks the nerve nerve endings in your fingers and in different parts of your body to the extent that uh, over time, you just lose the ability to feel pain in any way, shape, or form and to lose any sensation of touch. 
So sometimes lepers, you, you, you kind of see the, the sense of like they have no nose. You see, if you can Google some images of it, you'll see they have no nose or worn down skin. That's not because the skin like fell off per se. It's that um, people kind of almost slowly go mad. You can't feel touch. And so you're touching and moving your body, but there's never any um, biofeedback that, oh, like you've rubbed past the first two layers of skin and it's painful now, so you like stop rubbing it. You just keep rubbing it and you'd wear down. You'd wear off parts of your body. You'd wear off nubs of your feet. You just, you don't have any sensation. And so you're kind of trapped in your own body without any uh, feedback about your environment. It's, it's a really horrifying, horrifying way to live. Inattentive patience in the 20th century could, you know, you could, you could put your hand in a pot of boiling water and feel nothing. Your body has no ability to signal to you that you're in trouble. You could have uh, inner infections or um, stuff happening on the inside of your body and where normally we'd say, oh, I don't feel very well, I have a fever. People would just continue on, continue on. So you often die from other complications related to the fact that you can't sense that you're in any kind of pain, that there's anything wrong with your body. You don't feel anything, which is another really, you know, the next time that you experience pain in your life, thank God for it. So thank you, God. Because the pain is telling you something is wrong so you can address it, so you can deal with it. People with leprosy didn't have this. By the first century, the disease was collapsed with everything that symbolized what was despised and, and loathsome to people. If you had leprosy, you were not allowed to live in a community with your own people. The Levitical law in Leviticus 13 made it very clear. If you have any kind of a skin condition, which meant something like leprosy, but it could be lots of skin conditions, you were removed from the community. You were unclean permanently until that condition left. Unclean meant no synagogue, no temple worship. You were living on your own. And on your own meant like on your own, not like oh, I live by myself, but I still like, get to go into town. No, there's no going into town. You don't get to go near people. If there was no wind blowing, the rabbi said, someone with leprosy could come within six feet of someone else. If it was dead, dead air. If the wind was blowing, you don't come within 150 feet. So if you had leprosy, not only did you suffer in all kinds of ways that were very difficult to put into words, but you were completely socially isolated. You were religiously isolated. You were, you were a dead man walking. You were the living embodiment of the corrupting, distorting, toxic nature of sin. People looked at you and you were the illustration of what sin does. And so God in Leviticus 13, when he says anybody who's leprous, you are sent out of the community. It was meant to be a visual reminder that sin is to have no part of your life. You don't let sin mingle in with your life. You identify it and you cast it out. You get rid of sin because sin, like leprosy, will begin to uh, deform you from the inside out. It will begin to deaden you to things that you need to not be deadened to. It will begin to slowly eat you away. So if you are a leper, and you've been commanded by God to go to the outskirts and live outside the core area of wherever God's people were, first when they were going through the desert, but then eventually settled in the promised land. What does it tell us about this leper who comes into the town, right? He's coming into the town. They're just at someone's house for lunch. 
He comes into town to get Jesus to cleanse him. What does that tell us about this person? Super desperate. Capital D desperate. This is, this is a, um, we all go to places in our mind. I mean, think about the place where a time, uh, you, you got that phone call, this thing happened, you had this realization, your stomach dropped, you realize, I'm in a desperate situation. Like life just turned, I mean, this is where this guy is at. Because if you're a leper willing to do this, willing to go into a community and not stay 150 feet from people, not even stay six feet from people, you're moving through crowds, you're at, a, you're at an advanced stage of deterioration. You are totally desperate. Because once people realize that you have leprosy, and once they realize you have disobeyed Leviticus 13, they're going to kill you. If, if out of no other reason, out of fear. You're, you're a dead man walking. This guy's going all in for Jesus. It's Jesus or bust. I got nothing else. And if he comes to Jesus, you know, he's got this condition that's so severe, he's risking his life to get to Jesus. And he doesn't even make a demand, though. Doesn't even make a demand. He says, if you're willing, make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. He knows who Jesus is. He has some measure of faith in him. So, and, and it might be small. It might have, a, might have a shred of hope, but it's enough to say, this is all I've got. And, and Jesus needs to be all I have because there's, there's no plan B. I've got nothing else. In verse 41, it says, Jesus, and this word will be very different depending on your translation. Some translations will say indignant. Some will say angry. Some will say filled with compassion. Some will say filled with mercy. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and he said, I am willing. He said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus heals immediately and totally. That word that translations have a trouble with, filled with compassion, angry. If you research it, there's tons of arguments about what's going on there. It's a very complex word and it's a complex word that's made even more complex by the context. The simplest way to think about it is that when Jesus sees this man and he hears this man's request, he, is, um, he has a moment where his stomach churns. like He feels the weight of what is happening in his guts. He's filled with compassion and pity, yes, but not in a, oh, I feel bad for this guy. This is like the full weight of this, what this man has had to, to bore his life. Kind of Jesus takes that on. And he, what this man has had to endure, the isolation, the labeling of being unclean, the, kind of the, the totality of his suffering hits Jesus. And Jesus is both pities the man, but he's both angry at the state of, of sin in this world. He's angry that someone would have to suffer like this. Jesus looks at the leper and, is, and he's sick to his stomach. He's sick to his stomach over this man's plight, over the advanced stage of leprosy. Now, if you're reading the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus says, I am willing, 
how do you, if you're reading this for the very, very first time, and you're assuming, okay, now the next part is Jesus heals a person. How do you assume Jesus is going to heal this guy? How would you assume Jesus is going to heal this guy? He's probably just going to say, be clean. He doesn't need to do anything. You've already seen it through the Gospels. Jesus can raise people from the dead with a word. There are centurions who come to Jesus who say, yeah, my servant's dying. Jesus is like, yeah, he's fine. Go home. He'll, he'll, I've taken care of it. He doesn't even have to be in the vicinity of someone. And he could raise people from the dead, but he touches the man. And he says, I am willing to be clean. That's super, super important because remember, Jesus heals instantaneously, but he heals totally. And he didn't just take the disease, the leprosy from the man. He also touches him because let your imagination go 10, 30, 40 years since anyone's actually even touched this person. And it, you know, it wasn't like this. It wasn't like Jesus going like, this is Jesus embracing this man, right? Probably maybe one hand on his face, one hand on his shoulder. I am willing. He looks him straight in the eye. He comes close. Maybe he brings him close. <laughs> Jesus heals totally. Jesus isn't threatened by his lack of cleanness. And when Jesus does that, you've got to understand, the text doesn't say it, but it's, it's, it's right, it has to be there. The moment Jesus touches that man, the entire, the entire audience gasps. I mean, they have to. You don't touch a leper. In the Levitical law, the only thing that's worse than touching a leper is touching a dead body. That's the highest level of uncleanness. Second to it is touching someone who's a leper, who's kind of like the walking dead. Jesus touches the leper. And now everyone knows, oh, Jesus is unclean now. If you touch something unclean, you become unclean. Religiously, that was the context of Israel. But that's true in our world. If I touch dirt, I get dirt on myself. But in this miracle, it doesn't work that way. When Jesus touches this person who has this unclean disease, he doesn't get contaminated at all. All the cleanness goes from Jesus onto the man. And we know that Jesus, it never even occurred to Jesus <laughs> that he was unclean because there are procedures that you do. When you touch something unclean, you go to a priest, there's a certain ceremonial washing, you can read about that in Leviticus, to become not unclean. Read through the rest of the gospel. Jesus never goes to a priest. He's not unclean. Again, Another really strong hint. Is this guy just a prophet? Can't be. Because there's only one entity in all of reality who is so pure that it cannot be contaminated by sin. What is that entity? It's God. God's the only entity who in him, he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God cannot be contaminated. Another instance where the divinity of this Jesus is established. The cleanness flows from him. That's like me touching something dirty and it becoming clean and I raise my hand and it's clean. It, it, it's crazy. But symbolically, it's so powerful. Jesus is God come in human form to deal with our uncleanness. Remember last week in the synagogue when Jesus told the demon to shut up, it says that the people were ekplesioed, 
They were, they were outstruck. They were mind blown. Same thing's happening here. Guarantee it. Mark doesn't use that word, but it's right there. I mean, it's the inference in the text. How would you not be mind blown? You see someone go from that state and somehow before your eyes, you now have complete health and vibrancy and Jesus says, now go. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anybody, but go show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices to Moses, sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. To who? To the priest. Jesus is saying, I want the priest to see that God is at work. Because they think they've got a little corner on God, but I want, you go, you tell them who did this, and you offer your sacrifices, you show them that you're cleansed now, because I want them to hear this. This is a testimony for them. So don't tell anyone else, go to the priests. But instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. And yet people still came to him. And they came to him from everywhere. And Mark doesn't intend us to read this last part of chapter 1 as a good thing. This is actually a bad thing. This guy goes out and disobeys Jesus and starts telling all these people. Because now... It's crushing. Like the humans, there's crush space now. Like humans are cru- like just surrounding. Wherever Jesus goes, the towns ahead hear about it and he can't go into the towns to preach. Remember, that was his priority. So he has to be isolated outside of the cities now. People have to go to him out in the countryside because word about him is spreading everywhere. There's a lot in our text today but I want to make sure everybody in this room leaves this morning understanding the gospel in this story because it's, it's right in front of us and it's really, really important for us to see. If you think about this encounter with this leper, at the start of this encounter, the leper is the dead man walking. The leper is the person who is isolated, who is alone, he has no hope in the world. But by the end of the encounter, there's been this complete reversal of fortunes. The leper has holistically been born again. And now he's going around telling other people a story, right? He's finding community. He gets to go into the cities now. He gets to tell people. Um, His life has new meaning and new purpose and new opportunity. For the first time, he's discovering what what it means to live with a living hope. But Jesus finds himself more confined and more isolated, less free. He can't travel wherever he wants to go. He's increasingly being alienated and isolated. Jesus used to be able to stay in the city, has to go out to lonely places now. So Jesus and the leper have kind of traded places here. And Mark wants us to make sure we see that. See, the leper finds new life, but it costs Jesus very, very dearly. And it's going to continue to cost Jesus dearly. And this is something that if you're reading through Mark, watch for this pattern. Because until the latter chapters of Mark, um, as, as Mark progresses, we discover that in order to cleanse and redeem and to give new life, Jesus has to become the dead man walking. He is the person who now has to bear the sins of the world. And that's being alluded to in Mark, but it becomes more and more clear as the gospel moves towards the cross. (laughs) 
<laughs> Probably is my kid, so I can't even say anything. It's like, what are you going to do? Jesus is going to have to bear the full weight of sin and death. Jesus is going to have to be utterly abandoned. And he's going to be utterly abandoned. He's going to be isolated, utterly and completely, outside the city, by a garbage dump, on a cross. And he's eventually going to say, even my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's going to totally do the full exchange. Why is that happening? Jesus is allowing himself to be isolated. He's allowing himself to be cut off so that we could be brought into the family of God. And Mark wants us to see that in the story of the leper. Mark wants to say, here's a story about Jesus healing the leper, but it's really your story because you're the leper. Before God, you're just as disfigured spiritually and broken and hopeless as that man from India. But Jesus sees you and he touches you. And he doesn't just remove sin from your life, but he puts his spirit inside of you and he empowers you into an entirely new kind of life. And it's all made possible because of his death and resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no uncleanness to to become unclean in himself for us so that in him we might become clean. We might take on the cleanness of Christ. He's going to take all of our uncleanness and give us his cleanness. He's going to bear our sin and gift us with his righteousness. So you and I are the leper in the story. That's very important for us to never, ever forget. And so now... Let's go into this city and let's tell people about what he's done for us. Let's share this good news with other people because this town is a city of lepers who even though they don't consciously know it, are looking for Jesus. Remember Peter's words? Everyone's looking for you. We all are through our lives and our spheres of influences this week, let's have the courage to go out there and in some small way say, this is what Jesus has done for me. Let's pray. God, as we prepare our hearts for a time of communion, as we come forward, may we, um, may the weight of your glory and your goodness uh, overwhelm us in new ways, God, wash over us, May our condition before you, like before coming to you, with that picture of the leper, with, with understanding what leprosy is, may, may we have a new appreciation for the new life that we have in you, our hopelessness before you, and now new life and living hope with you now. Um, as we worship during the song, God, uh, and prepare our hearts, may we worship you in spirit and in truth, and may we give you thanks. In Jesus' name. So we're gonna we're gonna spend this time uh, song to to pray and to sing to God. Do your own work and your own heart with Jesus, and then after this song, I'll lead us uh, in a communion to close the service.